East Coast. Like, just chill with the horns. Me, me. Just, just, yes, just me. chill because I don't know. Like, me. it doesn't all the time. Me. And it's. Welcome to the Break Dream Podcast. This is Jeff. And this is Laura. Today, (laughs) (laughs) we're out of tune and out of sorts, but I'm here to chat with Jeff about a recent conference he attended and maybe talk a little bit about what's going on in my classroom these days um, so we can catch up with what's been going on in our world of work in higher ed. So Jeff, you just got back from Boston, is that correct? Yes, the Association of American... Colleges, WAMC Association of American Medical Colleges. I know I was leaving out an important word in there. Um, I don't know how to explain the equivalent of this because it's it's kind of everything involved in a medical college, which which it involves some clinical practice, mm-hmm. it involves education, it involves I don't know uh, things that I don't uh, you know deans of colleges, people who are in charge of getting revenue for the college, so they're worried about they're looking at like policy stuff, but there's a pretty substantial education contingency there too. So it's, it's so it's, it's interesting because so many people were together under one, one, one roof at, at the time. So it's a rather large conference. It's, um, I don't know how many, I'm going to guess 5,000 people. I don't know. 6,000. Wow. I don't know. It's, there's a lot. And we're at the, same conference center that I was at for NASPA 10 years ago in Boston, uh, by the Prudential Center. And you brought the cold weather back with you, I think it seems like. Uh, it, it wasn't that cold when I was there, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, I, only had like, I only had one cold day. It was actually kind of upsetting that it was so warm. Because when it's warm there, it's humid. So that was that was kind of annoying. So it, it went warm, cold, warm. It was Yeah, it was fine. Um, I walked quite a bit when I was there. One day, I almost walked 10 miles. Nice. I so, love pedestrian um, cities. So Boston is definitely one of those cities you can walk about and just, yeah, that's great. Definitely a walkable city. So the highlights of the conference is I got to meet in person Sue Caulfield. Right. You all talked yes. about on an earlier podcast that you were thinking about this conference. So you both got to go and attend and yes. have a drink, a break of drink together. Um, it was more coffee in the morning. We didn't get a lot of it, the the conference as long as it is. It's overwhelming and like emotionally exhausting. Right. Uh, and so she was staying with her sister. So she was staying offsite. We didn't get tons of time to see each other, and we were in different sessions. But we did get to spend some time before we left our last day there in the morning. But she's she's as lovely in person as she is, you know, on a podcast. So it was great to, to meet her in person. Uh, Fun you know, fact about that, since we talked with a friend of the pod who joined us on episode six, we'll repost that in the Higher Ed Commits. Uh, Sue had been podcasting with us for, I don't know, since 2010 or 12 or something like that. And Jeff only knew her digitally. And she, yeah. this is the first time they actually broke drink with coffee. So that's great. And I got to say, it wasn't weird to me. It was as if we'd known each other for years because we have known each other for years. And so we didn't have to do the whole awkward, like, meet. of course, I say that. Maybe she thought it was weird. Yeah, probably. I'll check in with 
I apparently is tall. I'm taller in um, real life than I am on a podcast. Yeah, you sit with your computer chair lower. I think the organization of the conference is interesting. Yeah. So they have they have plenary sessions, and they um, uh, David Brooks was the the first plenary from the New York Times. Oh, and Yeah, and he was great. Like he did a really great job, and uh, I I don't know a lot about him. I know him from PBS NewsHour, the barbershop discussion on NPR on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, a lot of people don't, don't like don't like him because he's conservative. Yeah, I was gonna um, say that. But like, actually, yeah. I've never I've never known him to be like apologetically conser- conservative. Like he seems to try to be fair minded and thoughtful. So that's funny uh, because you know he's born in Canada, right? Uh, I did not know that. Speaking of apologies, I, I know he. Went I know he went to uh, well, so there's, there's like a conservative Republican type from Canada, mm-hmm. and he and he writes for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And he went to like he's like breaking all the all the all the stereotypes, but um, like you, some might but, say. <laughs> but he uh, um, he he did a really great job. I, I was really impressed with this with this uh, plenary talk. There were other. He's the only plenary speaker I went to. I tried to exercise some in the morning, so I didn't always make it to those. Then there's basically like long sessions, Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's probably really hard to get accepted there. Um, I don't like when you say long session. What are you saying? A marathon length, two and a half hours, uh, like an hour and a half, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and it's generally, at least the sessions I go to, it's a panel discussion around one topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the medical education toolbox had someone like give an overview of getting started doing medical education research. Mm-hmm. Um, had someone talk about um, how to use, how to access the data the WMC has, how to do data requests, what's available. Okay. I had someone about publishing with that data, like more like tangible. These are some examples of things we've done with this. This is what I do with my school with this data. And the last person talked about the medical education research certificate that we have. We I run that at my campus and about how you can get kind of professional training around medical education at your campus. And then they do typically 15 minutes of Q&A. Yeah, so I learned about that format from a colleague that's in um, child's um, orthopedic surgery. She's an occupational therapist that sits on um, a couple committees, a good friend of mine locally that works at the Children's Hospital and they do spina bifida. And she told me about their panel format and like they kind of have different people speak on. So she's a practitioner, has her master's, there's a surgeon, there might be a researcher and they all kind of share lenses of the different perspectives. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like there's some things the medical and healthcare community uh, actually do really well when it comes to conference, putting practice with research theory with applying right. it for what you need to do. So I, I like this format. I, I understand a lot of people don't like it. It's hard for them to sit, sit there that long as ADD as I am. Like it doesn't, it, it holds my attention because you know, each person's only presenting like 15 or 20 minutes, mm-hmm. but typically going at a pretty good pace. Yeah. There's a Q and there's a Q and a time at the end. Sometimes they'll do like table discussions, which is always annoying. Like they sucked me into this getting to know people around me. The, like as a surprise, Says the introvert. <laughs> yes, but um, overall, I kind of I like the format, and I and I gotta say, of the 
I don't know, seven or eight sessions I went to, like they were all meaningful in some way. Like I took something away from every session that's going to be useful. And I've never like walked away from a conference like that before. Typically like maybe one or two sessions work out. But now I was very specific and targeted to my sessions this year. Like there was um, competency-based education is is a big thing in the medical field. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have this thing called entrustable professional acts, which is kind of like these guidelines of competencies. They're still fairly new. People are trying to implement them. And so I went to a lot of sessions to learn about how schools are doing it. And so, yeah, so that was most, that was, um, that was my like main focus was thinking about, thinking about that going in. That'd be interesting to know how it's going for medical school because competency-based impacts on the world I live in online and, uh, friends of the pod from Topcast actually had a really good episode on Western Governors Union, a u- yeah. university, sorry, that had yeah. challenged or had been challenged by the state of education, um, calling them in the dollars of $7.12 million of repayments uh, for funding, federal funding. And they do a lot wow. of competency-based education and innovative kind of design learning. And I'll put a link to that episode in <clears> our notes, but... How does competency base and is it about accreditation between schools or countries or things like that or experiences for medical schools? So so the 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 main terminology is uh, UME and GME. So undergrad medical education, which oh, gotcha. is your typical your typical medical school, mm-hmm. um graduate medical education is like your residency programs. Okay. And so um I don't know the whole history of how the EPAs were developed, but there was some uh, the GME had what's called um, milestones, and it's like professionalism, history taking. There's five milestones they had. Okay. What the EPAs were, and the entrustable professional acts was to say these 13 things. These are the 13 things medical students need to be ready for day one of residency. Okay. So from like. Um, history taking, um, communication skills, systems-based practice. I'm sure there's one about diversity. And um, so it's, uh, or working with diverse populations. And so, um, so a lot of research went behind developing them. There are pilot schools that helped, um, they kind of were going to implement them. And so what is giving us as a medical school is a universal framework where we can and it also says like these competency like this it gives examples this is what this means to be competent like this mm-hmm. these things means you're not doing that so and they're tested at like your board exams and things like that <coughs> so when we say competencies it's really interesting for me to hear because you and I have come from knowing the student affairs as well as the academic advising areas now have professional competencies we're not ever going to a board test and we're not going to be examined against or tested against metrics of performance based on competencies the same way. Yeah. So medical school is kind of divided in half. The first half is basic sciences. So that's basically like all of your classroom stuff, like everything you need to know to be a doctor. I mean, in a very generalized way. Right. Um, And then you, it's, you take your first board exam um, at that time period called step one. And then you go into your clinical, um, education um and that's kind of all your third year so there's some clinicals that's required like 
um, surgery, internal medicine, mm-hmm. uh, family medicine, OBGYN, pediatrics, et cetera. Um, we have some extra ones at ours in emergency medicine and neurology. And so, and some people may have other extra ones. Like specializations and, and stuff. Yeah. Okay. And there, there are still kind of like general to that specialty. Like when you do surgery, you may go do transplant surgery for four weeks, but you're not doing like all eight weeks in one, one specialty. So it, it kind of varies like on the different, the different clerkships. There's what they call a shelf exam. And I guess is the term comes from like literally they like take it off a shelf and give it to you. Mm-hmm. And that's done by the national medical board examiners or NBME national board of medical examiners. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like a universe. That's, that's uh, everyone's given this exam out for, um, the clerkships and now your grade is going to be comprised of that exam plus uh, feedback. So any clinical encounters. So if you work with a physician, they're probably going to write a note about your performance. Right. Like they, they were really good at this. This is um, a way they can improve. I think what we need to do is let the students know um, these are the EPAs. Mm-hmm. This is where we're expecting you to be. You need to think about where you are and what you need to get better in. And you need to create improvement plans. And you need to work with your clerkship director to make sure you get those experiences mm-hmm. um, to, to grow and improve. So I think the student needs to be an active part of, uh, of creating their learning plan. And and so I think we need to teach them this and teach them how to like take take feedback and get better at it and don't get upset when you're getting, you know, criticized because they're trying to help you and, uh, and use those as, 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 as growth. So there's some dynamic changes that need to happen and probably how we do the evaluation, how we set it up, how, and so. I was going to so ask, er- is this transparent yeah. or, so what you're talking about is in creating almost like benchmarks for a learning pathway that, could be tailored based on the student, but has some basic, um, this is what you need to get at this level, X level, next level. And then if you don't excel in this area, what do you need to work on or what do you need to retool? It's like it's like our undergraduate learners who weren't succeeding in undergrad, but they, we seem to map their pathways a bit more and um, watch them a bit more for retention. So is that done at the medical school level? And um, it is, but I think this. Well, I think this brings a different framework where we need to shift some, and it may be done on a more ad hoc, on a more ad hoc basis. Definitely, in the basic sciences, like we know who's struggling, who needs mm-hmm. tutors, who can, you know, who needs more special attention. I guess the clinical, it's it's kind of sometimes harder to track that. How it that's, depends on where you're placed and who you're involved with. Yeah. I'm guessing, yeah. Yeah, and some of it—I mean, some of it's subjective, right? People write notes on your clinical encounters, and they're generally consistent, though. So it's—it's it's hard to say. You know, rarely would someone say like Laura's horrible and Laura's awesome, right? So they're generally gonna—they're gen, generally gonna be consistent with with the student, and that goes into the um, the grading too. The thing that's interesting, like there's—it's kind of like the new shiny thing, the EPAs, and like everyone wants to use them, but no one quite knows how to do it yet. But everyone feels like like there's an arms race, like who can do this first? Like like we're putting this pressure on ourselves. Um, and one of one of the presenters who's from Vanderbilt, who's been part of the pilot project and the part of the development, she's kind of like, um, y'all need to kind of chill, like right. like like don't force this. Like you really need to take time to figure this out. So I'm like, that's great you're saying that, but I think we can do it this way. <laughs> 
So Well, it sounds like you're yeah. going to have to do a pilot. And this is interesting because I think I've had conversations with um, actually Canadian colleagues of mine that have competencies in student affairs are piloting with three different types of kind of higher ed teams. One's a res life one, one's a student life one, and one's kind of an orientation and programs one. And they are kind of like, how do we unpack them? I said, talk with your teams about them. Talk with, you know, the people you're going to work with professionally and consider how they're going to translate them because someone else made them up and they haven't put them into like, whether it's a, a rubric performance measurement or tested what training and learning would look like with those as those set outcomes. Like this is just like the pie in the sky vision almost. Yeah. And so the, the, the interesting thing about clinical education is we have opportunities to have like pilots and test groups because of the way it goes, like every four weeks or every six weeks or maybe eight weeks, depending on the clerk, the, on what you're doing, mm -hmm. you're basically have like a new class, right? So you're rotating students through like every four to six weeks where on our basic sciences, we teach like one class one time a year. Right. So right. if we need to make ch changes, the changes are really going to be the next year unless we actually catch it like when it's, when it's coming. Right. But there's an, there's an improvement plan that happens next year. But with the other one, like we actually have like built in controls. We can like, you know, you know do group comparisons. Um, like it's, it, it's just it lends itself to uh, to doing that that type of, of work in there. So like to understand causal effect and causal yeah. study on that. No, I think yeah. that's great. I think whether you have like a true experimental or quasi experimental design, it sounds like you could test pilot and it's kind of like design thinking meets um, controlled causal study. And you can see if that works and then reshift and shape it again. I like yeah. that a lot. So, yeah, so this is something that almost, I would say almost all medical schools are trying to figure out how mm -hmm. to how to implement this and how to do it without being like, it, it, it's hard, without being completely disruptive because faculty who just do clinical training or teaching kind of universally around the world, like if you kind of come in with like, this is the new thing we're doing, like they may just like roll their eyes at you, right? So you need to kind of come in with with your research and your homework and your plan, you know, and share how this is like, this isn't like just the new thing. This is like the thing we're going, going to be doing. You. Yeah. For the foreseeable future. This is kind of what all research is going to be not all research. A lot of research is going to be based on going, going forward too. So. Did you travel like, I, with any of your faculty to this conference and were they in this session or did you talk to them there? Yeah. So um, we had a pretty big contingency. One of, uh, one of the, uh, our future chair of the curriculum committee and the current uh, co-chair of the curriculum committee was there. That's great. And I, not to get too nerdy, but like, please, you, you may nerd out on me. You're talking we, to a nerd. Like our curriculum is mapped like to the session. So we have uh, like learning objectives and we have our, our own kind of core competencies, which we created years ago. Mm -hmm. Most of this was set up before I got there. So I, I'm probably saying stuff that I don't know enough about, but, <laughs> but they basically through the software we have um, map, like map the competencies that are being taught or sorry, the learning objectives that are being taught like to the course objectives. So we can say this was taught on Tuesday, March 31st that morning by this faculty. 
And so, so the, the just curriculum. Just good learning design. Good for you guys. <laughs> yes. It doesn't yeah. happen the whole time, though. I think that's fantastic. Good for you yeah. guys, for real. So, um, so it, it's, when we fully implement it, it's going to be a pretty substantial change. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one that's going to last for a while. And it's, it's going to be a healthy one. And it probably needs to take place after our accreditation site visit in 15 months from now. Right. So, but you can yeah. start planning and piloting. But we are, yeah. We're taking like a we're taking a long view of this, right? So, like, we're gathering the research, we're having conversations we need to have. We'll probably do some pilot testing at some point, yeah. But we're doing our due diligence to to implement this. Cool, that's awesome. As a current cu- curriculum chair of, say, an undergrad committee, I think that's really amazing, and I think it's great that you're a part of that as well. So, I think you have a good skill set to lend to this development and yeah. pilot. So I think that's going to be amazing. And we have a great like director of curriculum to make sure all the mapping's done. Um, we report the mapping to WMC. So then there's like this, especially this pretty like robust dead, like database of resources and stuff. Uh, it, yeah. And data. Like if I wanted to do some research on like curriculum mapping, I, I could, that just doesn't sound exciting to me to work on. Um, <laughs> anytime. You're missing out. I'm telling you, Jeff, in a learning science area, it's amazing. Can I point out something that you said you liked in the conference that you, I know you don't like in actual fact? Yes. You said you liked the 20 minute presentation format. And right now I'm working with my students in one of my face to face courses on said type of presentation format or 18 minutes. It's the ideas worth spreading you love. So this one is typically done like 20 minutes as a part of a larger presentation. It's so, different people. Yeah, so they're kind of back to back to back. And they don't have a fancy stage. And they not, they're not trying to get a book deal per, per se. Okay, so what we're talking about is the TED Talk. Uh, the TED Talk is the technology... At, sorry, entertainment and design talks. So that have gone viral since Ted opened it up and they have these TEDx talks. And so Jeff and I have talked about this before. Typically it's a presentation on a great well-formed idea in less than 18 minutes. And uh, I want to talk about it because it's a format that I'm bringing into one of my corporate training courses. I'm teaching face-to-face on our new Frisco campus and I think the idea of storytelling has come in, but Jeff's referring to the hype around the red dot on the stage to the sage on the stage that can happen, I'm guessing. Um, But the idea of getting it to a succinct talk of an idea of something you can present on is the ultimate goal. And I've seen it in a number of courses as I've looked to, let's say, redesign this course and include this type of talk in it. Um, But I will say I... Probably agree, Jeff, that it's probably gone too far into the spammy marketing, quote, personal branding area that I like or don't like. And um, I'm probably with you on that perspective of a TED Talk. This is, this is, um, oh, oh, before we go on to TED Talks, I got to show you one thing. This is, this is, look, it's an assessment pop-up book. (laughs) Like the assessment profile. See this? Watch. Watch. So all Ready? of you nerds Look. out there, he's showing me an assessment pop-up book. On this side, this is the traditional view of assessment, very compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. On this side is 
The trend. Is the trend, which I got to say, I hate that labeling. This is from the Europeans. Um, I don't know. But, but watch. Ready? Ready? I'm waiting. It's it's very user experience this is, engineered. This is this is great. This is great audio. <laughs> we will get a okay. gif of whatever he's showing for the show today. This is what we'll do. We'll gif okay. that one up for you. Back to TED Talks. All right. Okay. So. So back to TED Talks. Well. Um. So yeah, I, go. I, I gotta say, historically, I was a fan of them. Um. Mm-hmm. I remember when someone told me about them. I didn't know they existed. You know, for a long time, back in like 2010 or whenever, you could talk about TED Talks and no one knew who, no one knew what you're talking about, right? Right. And and then it became like I have a bucket list goal of doing a TED Talk one day, right? Like that, and that became the goal. Sure. The goal wasn't my have a bucket list of of having something so compelling to share. I would be asked to do it. Like, it was like for the it was a goal for the sake of having a goal. It's not that people want to hike Mount Everest because it's there, right? Right. Like, they're not focused on like the content. They weren't. Fo- they wasn't like. I just have to. I have this thing that's like so compelling to share. Like Brene Brown actually didn't want to do that talk in front of that many people, mm-hmm. right? So like she kind of hates that, um, and and she's very honest about she hates that. In her second TED talk, she talked about how she wanted to break into TED and steal the tape from the first <laughs> TED talk, as if it was an answer machine tape. Um, Answer machines or something that used to record audio messages on for the millennials listening now. They don't um, even so, answer to voicemail right now, so you know you're just describe something that's obsolete in, in general. Yeah. It's right. It's what it's like the audio version of texting. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> so I, I I like the fact it it is helping people or inspiring people to present better. And not having slides full of text and uh, possibly shorter and more concise and more eloquent than they would have before of when they're turning constantly and pointing their finger to the slides and reading the text along with you verbatim. So I like the fact that it in some ways changed the dynamics of talks. I hate the fact that people refer to them as Ted like talks as if it's this like own format genre format. Yeah. I I think the idea of storytelling came in there. And so they do talk and I, I have a small lending library, so I don't require any textbooks for my course because Ted has a wealth of um, kind of how to formats. And I've, have some books purchased in my lending library and I'll give credit to Nancy Duarte uh, for some of them. Like, so she's done slideology, resonate, illuminate, but talks about the story arc. And so a lot of my class wasn't really about presenting. It was ideation. It was drafting a story, thinking about design elements and how you would do that with others. And I think the talk part is, is almost less important because a lot of my students get really hyped up about, in a, in a negative way about being nervous and about talking and I let them know whether you're presenting your idea or another idea in this class the idea is the preparation the practice the journey the experience and a lot of their grades for um, these talks that they're doing and there's a few different formats they do is about the preparation and so what they're thinking about about ideas the questions that an audience would ask or 
something that they're really concerned about in their art and how they're going to deliver. And so I think um, the idea of a TED talk is nice for, let's say, a faculty member that wants to grade a shorter talk. But what I do for this is record them and they watch them later. And we've done it with um, a shorter Ignite or Pachakcha talk as well. So they can see if they sway or fidget or they can get a sense of their tone or if they're um, how they're presenting enthusiastically. But I also, we look at different kinds of presenting formats and we're not doing a webinar, as you may have seen in one of the scrolls of my, my thing, but or a conference. We're doing um, instructional videos or maybe an audio podcast is a bonus one. But we're thinking about ways of telling a story and delivering the message and idea in different formats. It might be consumable. So if it's an audio version, they also do a transcript and show notes, kind of like what we do with a podcast. Or right. if they're doing their TED Talk, they're going to reflect on, well, what was that story arc? And what was the content that went into it? And the idea of getting Creative Commons licensed or fair use items to put in. And those are the things we really emphasize in the course they present but their presentation grades much smaller than the let's say the development grades so i like ted talks for that purpose that it makes it um something they can sink their teeth into but it, you'd be surprised i had to explain what a ted talk was in my class this wow. semester so i mean th this is where i think it's valuable i think brene's brown brene brene brown, brene brown book possessive not plural Okay. Um, her, her book, um, I think it probably changed the lives of people. I think, I think that book was, a, is considered a very important book for a lot of people. Um, because it talked about vulnerability and courage in a way the books haven't done that. And it's based on her, on being an academic researcher, right? Mm -hmm. So it's based on like legit research. So had she not done a Ted talk, that book would not be as big as it was. She would probably write a book that other academics would like a hundred of them would have purchased. And it would have been uh, maybe popular research amongst the social work psychology field who works in clinical settings, but it would not be as accessible and as adopted as it was. So like, and I gotta say that Ted talk was not like, the big TED talk that was the Ted Houston. So it wasn't, she wasn't initially invited to do the big one. It was the like local, the local TED talks. Um, so I, I think, so I see the, the value in it on the reverse side. I hate when there's a book, when someone does a TED talk and they get a book deal out of it and the book has no more information than like the 15 minutes you saw in the Ted talk. Like, like the 15 minutes is really everything they had to say about it. Do, do you have an example of that? So Daniel Pink's book, um, drive. Yes. Drive. Like there's more examples in the book, but it's basically, I didn't realize he got a book deal. Um, I thought it was reverse. I thought he had a, it's just different examples. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but no, no, I think you might be um, right though. Like, so that was, that was that was my memory of it. No, because I mean, Amy Cuddy, do you remember her power posing? Yeah. So that research was presented 
Um, she got a book deal on presence and then people have replicated her study and found it not to be correct. And it's torn her down. And it, there's been some interesting articles about her, her research partner who said she shouldn't have gone forward and done that talk. And it's, it's kind of a big platform to put yourself out there, especially if these, um, findings aren't, you know, solid, um, they're not replicable and, but I don't want to detract scholars or researchers from ever sharing in different ways because some people aren't going to read your paper or your manuscript, your journal, your conference proceedings. So I feel like it's a different way to present an idea, um, like the research in plain English idea or the three minute thesis, um, to the lay audience that, has a lot of less respect for expertise these days is what I'm learning or the truth. So Daniel Pink's Ted talk was in July of 2009. His book came out in uh, 2011. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I guess you're right. I didn't think it was a big launcher for that. I thought it was the other way around more so until, yeah. And I would say like, it's not that I don't like the content of the book. Like mm -hmm. I thought it was, I think, I think he had something important to say. I think it was important research. It just wasn't uh, substantially more in the book than what was in the on the, in the TED Talk. Yeah. Um, so instead of recommending someone read the book, I could say if you get the TED Talk, you got to get the gist of what's in the book. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think there's a flooding of the TED Talk markets of lots of talks. So I think it's an interesting platform. I do it so my students can see themselves do a longer talk because normally they might do a training or they might do a presentation. It's not like they're going to get up and do a keynote per se, but they have to think about their presence, their delivery, how they're sharing a message and how they're getting key points across. And those are just general skills to do really well in almost every work environment when you're working with other people. So yeah. I think it's, yeah, I'm with you. I get your, I get your gist on this and yeah. So, so I would, I was, I would say if your goal, if you're listening and your goal in life is to do a TED talk someday, please change your goal in life to have something meaningful and important to deliver in a very meaningful way. He was saying in point blank, do the work, forget the talk, do the work. Yeah. The, the talk is second. It, it, that's secondary to what, what you want to do. You want to come on their podcast before doing the talk. Think about that as a buildup. We launched many careers. So I will say to, to look at, so there's two people I know that have TED Talks. Mm -hmm. Actually, Julissa Arce has one. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's ever been made public, though. I don't remember. But she did one, the Ted Lubbock one at, at Tech. Well, you're just saying this now, so I have to do research. Thanks, Jeff. I'll, I'll find it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Gage Payne, uh, okay. former vice president of UT Austin, did a TED Talk. Hers was about kind of being present and being silent. And honestly, the first time I was listening to it, the silence kind of creeped me out and I couldn't do it. So it took me like a few tries to like do her TED Talk and feel comfortable with it. She made you feel awkward. And, Amazing. Good. And yeah. Uh, and I love Gage. She's been a great mentor at times in my life. So um, also... Um, Steve Tomlinson has done this on two occasions. One was in Austin. The audio was not very good. And the other one was called Choose Your Own Adventure. He was a business faculty in the Macomb School in Austin. And I got to see the, a version of this talk live on a couple occasions. It was impactful to, for me to, then. His TED Talk is like the 10-year follow-up of that. 
And so he's a, a great communicator and it's about his own career life and trajectory as being a faculty member and, and having other passions in his life and how they kind of all came together. So, so I, those are things I recommend and I care for both of those people and those, their talks that were, were impactful for me. So I have a really good TED Talk recommendation. So based on my work, I'm in a design as you go course that's including this TED Talk in there that you will enjoy and appreciate. Uh, it's a TED Talk on how to give TED Talks and it's like six minutes and sarcastic as heck. And Jeff, you'll like it because this researcher went I'll through, that. yeah, the researcher went through like what color shirt you should wear to what are the key topics. And they had, they went through beverages, there's coffee, there's French bag, French food, but there's no wine. And I tweeted at, I tweeted that out and he responded and said, I did think wine should have its own talk. Actually, you're, you're correct. So, <laughs> um, I will share with you, um, that, uh, tips for giving Ted talks on the research of Ted talks. And, I think it is fascinating as well that we're looking at the way that we're communicating these ideas. Some of them are research, some of them aren't. But yeah, I will share that with you and you'll enjoy a good laugh. My students, we did watch that in class and, and they had a good laugh about it all. And I said, they're, they're being sarcastic, but think about that. Do they, do they recommend not wearing a tie? Yeah, it's usually um, you want to match your slides with your shirt. So if you want to have a purple, uh, blue, and red uh pinstripe or checked shirts then you shouldn't think about your slide design with your outfit um things like that nice. some sarcasm so some true facts i think a lot of the guys who do ted talks a lot of the male presenters don't wear ties i call that republican casual because when you watch the republican the republican national convention that's republican um, casual i didn't know that That's all, good to know. all the guys are still wearing like suits but they like took their tie off to show how casual they were at the <laughs> at the convention now, no. now I know. Um, I think I think you will definitely enjoy this. Um, I will also give a shout out to our friend Paul Brown. Paul Gordon Brown designed a presentation for me a long time ago for this original course on how to give kick butt presentations, and he takes polls from different presentations and other masters. I'll put his kick butt presentations. So if you're thinking about how to give better presentations doesn't have to be a TED talk but you're thinking about a future conference we'll throw it into the show notes as well and it's a nice little tip and tricks on what you should think about for slide design and delivery nice all right i think that's it that's all i wrote all right thanks everyone for listening have a good one Peace. bye So I hear you love the East Coast and their drivers. Okay. East Coast. Like, just chill with the horns. Just, there's like so much honking all the time. Like, if you honk all the time, the horn has no effect. Because as soon as the light turns green, like, people are just like slamming on the horn because the person in front of you didn't get it fast enough. Me, me. Just, just, yes. Just me. chill. Because I don't need to be waking. I don't need to be waking up like every night at two o'clock in the morning when some Broadway show got out because the person in front of you like didn't move fast enough. Like, there doesn't need to be that much honking around the clock 
all the time. And if you see someone on the sidewalk, it doesn't kill you to acknowledge the presence of another human being somewhere around you. All right, pro tip for you. Never go to Mexico City. There's lots of honking and hand signs out the window. So, Like, like you don't even have to say hi to someone when you pass them on the sidewalk. But maybe, like, make eye contact. Maybe a little head, maybe a little head nod nah, or something. pushing it. Nah. Get out. I, go back to the south, you. And, and when I do say hi, you don't need to threaten me with bodily harm. <laughs> okay, that didn't really happen. But How still. about them apples? <laughs> awesome. Well, good to hear. Boston, we love you. Wicked, wicked deep. Wicked high. I do, love, I do love Boston. It's a great city. It's wicked great. Yeah. Peace.